Warning labels exist as an indictment of our potential stupidity. And I'm convinced, largely for our entertainment. Here, here are some actual warning labels on an iron. Never iron clothes while they're being worn. On a fireplace log. Caution, risk of fire. Brass hook, three-pronged hook. Harmful if swallowed. Superhero outfit. Cape does not empower user to fly. Cardboard sunshield. Do not drive while shield is in place. And my favorite. Stroller. Remove infant before folding stroller for storage. New parents sometimes need that one, I guess. Have you ever actually read the label on a box of Q-tips? It says the following, warning, do not insert swab into ear canal. Entering the ear canal could cause injury. If used to clean ears, stroke swab gently around the outer surface of the ear only. How many of you use Q-tips that way? <laughs> we often ignore warnings, and some warnings are more significant than others. 1 Corinthians, in large part, is a warning to both the church in Corinth and to us. To us who repeat the Corinthian error of drifting away from the centrality of the cross. We find ourselves this morning at the beginning of chapter 3 and in the middle of Paul's argument, which has been addressing issues pertaining to unity since verse 10 of chapter 1, and he'll continue addressing unity until the end of chapter 4. And in this particular chapter, Paul is going to correct misunderstandings about the cross and I'm sorry, and specifically the misunderstanding of Christian leadership. See, the problem underneath the Corinthian problem, and we've talked about it last week, we'll continue to talk about it until uh, we come to the end of chapter 4, is their, their prideful and worldly vision. They're operating according to cultural worldviews, or what Paul calls the wisdom of the age, rather than the wisdom of God which has been revealed to them by the Holy Spirit. And so Paul is going to talk about their poor understanding or their poor vision, their worldly living in verses 1 through 4 of chapter 3. And then in verses 5 through 23, he's going to provide the Corinthians and us with some spiritual LASIK. It's going to correct our vision. And so you can see on your outline that's been provided for you in bold, we have our two primary parts, poor vision and that vision corrected. And then you have all the numbers under that. All that is kind of the little pieces of how we're going to divide the text and walk through it today. I can't remember it specifically at all, so you'll just have to look down there uh, and get the idea. At any rate, our main idea this morning, that's what I want you to walk away uh, remembering about chapter 3, is to heed and grow. We want to heed the warning about God's attitude towards those who would destroy his church, and we want to grow into maturity. We want to grow into seeing the fullness of the gospel and living in light of that. Let's pray together and we'll get started. Father, we are weak and sinful people. Many of us come here tired and exhausted, not only because of the time change, but because of the demands of our lives. 
the stresses of living in a sinful and fallen world. We need your comfort this morning. We need to experience your grace afresh. We need to taste of your mercies which are new each and every day. Father, encourage us again with your word. Father, we ask that you lead us to repentance by your Holy Spirit, that we might walk more intimately with you. Let your word do its work this morning, we pray. Amen. Starting in chapter 3, verse 1. For my part, brothers and sisters, I was not able to speak to you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh. He's writing to Christians here. Let's read that again. I was not able to speak to you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as babies in Christ. I gave you milk to drink, not solid food, since you were not ready for it. In fact, you are still not ready because you are still worldly. For since there is envy and strife among you, are you not worldly in behaving like mere humans? For whenever someone says, I belong to Paul, and another, I belong to Apollos, are you not acting like mere humans? This is a stinging argument. Paul's just called Christians, that's anybody who has the Holy Spirit, anybody who believes in Jesus, he's just called them the mature in chapter 2, verse 6. And now he's telling the Corinthians that even though they have the Holy Spirit and are counted among the mature, he cannot address them as such because they're acting like babies. He's saying, you are acting like people without the Spirit. You're acting like mere humans, and so I'm going to address you as such. It's a little bit like the parent whose teenager is behaving like a young child. Right? Paul's telling them, if you want to act like a baby, I will treat you like babies. Evidence of their being fleshly or worldly is provided for us in terms of jealousy and strife. It's the same old boasting in men that we've seen the last few weeks. Uh, the Corinthians are puffing out their chest. They're aiming to be better than the person next to them by associating themselves with their brand name or celebrity teachers. I belong to Paul. I belong to Apollos. The, the Corinthians have believed the gospel, but they've not yet grown into it. That's what this milk and solid food stuff is about. Uh, it's likely that folks in Corinth had taken to calling Paul's teaching milk and not really good teaching, and the teaching of these other guys that they're following, uh, they're, they're whoever their brand name teacher is, is the real solid food. And so Paul kind of adopts that and says, I gave you milk, not solid food, because you weren't ready for the solid food, right? But, but the two are not actually different. It's not as if we graduate from the gospel and, and move on. He, he's, he's urging the Corinthians to abandon their present childish behavior altogether so that they can recognize and appreciate his milk for what it actually is, solid food. Right? The gospel of the crucified Messiah is both milk and solid food. As milk, it is the good news of salvation. And as solid food, it is understanding that the entire Christian life is predicated on the same reality. Paul's exhorting them to grow into the gospel, to be those who are in Christ, to be the spiritual people that they are supposed to be. 
We never grow up from the gospel, right? We, we've said this many times. The gospel is the ABCs of the Christian life. It's also the A to Z of the Christian life. It's like an ocean. It's shallow enough for a child to play in, and at the same time, it's deep enough to drown an elephant. We never move on from the gospel. We just swim more deeply into it. And those who should be plunging themselves into the deep, hidden beauties of the gospel ocean are content getting sunburnt on the world's beach. That's the situation in Corinth and in many of our lives. We've dipped our toes into the gospel waters and then fled back towards our beach chairs. It's more comfortable there. In other words, the Corinthians' behavior is at odds with their belief. See, I always say belief is born out in behavior. What you live is what you believe. We, we believe something when we act as if it were true. And the Corinthians are acting as if the wisdom of the world is true rather than the wisdom of God. They still see and understand reality through the lens of their pride. They're concerned with getting ahead by being more spiritual than the next person. And so this competition for spiritual superiority has bred among them envy, jealousy, quarrels, strife. So to state really simply what Paul's asking here, he's asking them, why haven't you been changed? Why haven't you been changed? That's, that's the problem. The Corinthians are not changing. They're not growing as they should be. I mean, this makes perfect sense. And this is going to be a little bit crass, but I think it will stick with us. If you have a, a three-month-old three child, he or she is in diapers, and it's not a big deal if they poop their pants, right? That's expected. That's what they're going to do. But if you have a child who is 13 years old, and he, and she, he or she is in diapers and is pooping their pants, that's concerning, right? It means they're not learning and growing as they should be. The Corinthians are still soiling themselves by way of their I matter more than anyone else attitude. I need to know I want to be better than the person next to me attitude because that, that's what pride is really saying. It's a worldly attitude and it's a cancerous one, especially to the church. The, the Corinthians are not changing. They're not growing into what they should be in Christ. And so let me apply the question to you. Are you changing? If we went to coffee and sat down and I asked you how God has been changing you over the last year, what would you tell me? Would you be able to come up with anything? See, the result of truly knowing God is transformation. Our goal when we gather together here is to worship and honor God with as much excellence as we possibly can, and a byproduct of our worship is transformation. We become different because we've encountered God. If there is no transformation, then we must doubt whether or not we are meeting with God. Because when we encounter God, we change. It's a little bit like going to the gym. When you're disciplined and exercising, it's usually not, if you're like me, not all that entertaining. It's a little bit painful, sometimes inconvenient, but it greatly benefits you. 
It puts you in better health and it transforms your body. Likewise, when we encounter God, we will be transformed. Are you changing? Let's test ourselves and see with a few questions if we are jealous or envious people. How how we might be tempted to stir up divisions. Here are some questions that can help us address that. Can you rejoice when someone else succeeds and you do not? Can you rejoice when someone else's kids do well and yours do not? Can you rejoice when someone else is popular and you are not? When somebody else gets a pay raise and you do not? Are you envious of your brothers and sisters in Christ or do you rejoice with them? Because envious is evidence, envy is evidence of worldliness. You might not be growing. I think perhaps we are more like the Corinthians than we like to admit. Maybe we, like them, are guilty of moving our eyes from the king of glory to our navels. Maybe we, too, are guilty of having distorted and worldly vision. Thankfully, Paul will correct our vision with two pictures. The first is an agricultural picture, and the second an architectural picture. The first is a farm. Look at verse 5 with me. What then is Apollos? What is Paul? They are servants through whom you believed, and each has the role the Lord has given. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So then neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. Now he who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his own reward according to his own labor. For we are God's co-workers. You are God's field, God's building. This is really a great picture that Paul paints for us, that Corinthians are feeding the flames of their pride by attaching themselves to their celebrity brand name teachers. And Paul turns around and says, who are these teachers anyway? I mean, who are these jokers? I don't even know. Because they are nobodies. He says they are servants. Only servants. He's pointing out how foolish it is to praise a servant for the master's work. Right? If you have an excellent meal, you don't thank the, the butler or the waiter who brought it to you. you. You thank the chef who prepared it. Or if you get a letter from a loved one in the mail, you don't fall in love with the mailman. No, you fall in love more deeply with your sweetheart. Why then would anyone boast in God's butlers or his mailmen? Why would we boast in his servants? I mean, it's silly. Paul's pointing out these people that you are attaching yourselves to, that you are associating with to make yourselves feel better about yourself. It doesn't make any sense. These these guys are servants, only servants. He's dismantling the Corinthian understanding of their leaders. Their leaders are not worthy of their devotion. Only the God to whom their leaders submit is worthy of their devotion. The picture is is pretty clear here. Uh, The church is the field. 
The different church leaders are the workers of the field, assigned with different tasks aimed towards the same goal. And God is the owner of the field, the author of its growth. Thus, verse 7, So then neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. God is the one we should be fawning over. Not celebrity pastors or teachers or Christian leaders. Notice all all the emphasis falls on God. God owns the field. God makes it grow. Apollos belongs to God and serves God. Paul belongs to God and serves God. We, the dirt in this analogy, by the way, really flattering picture. We, the dirt, belong to God and serve God. If we translate verse 9 more woodenly or more word for word, uh, we get an excellent kind of Yoda version of the Bible that helps us see the emphasis on God. Right? It says this, God's servants we are. Being God's co-workers, God's field, God's building, you are. If I had a better Yoda uh, impersonation, I would have laid it on you there, but I just I don't have it in me. We belong to God. The church, along with her leaders, belongs to God, not men. And godly leaders lead, not according to the wisdom of the age, but the folly of the cross. Christian leaders, especially pastor elders, are to lead by serving. We do well to remember this. Elders are, are not to be about building their own brand or their own kingdom, but about exalting Christ. It is the life of Christ that provides the model to us for Christian leadership. Remember, Jesus lived as one who served and in the ultimate expression of servanthood gave his life as a ransom for many. Mark 10, 45, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. You see, the cross is not only the paradigm of the gospel and of God's ways that stand in contradiction to human ways, but it also serves as the basic model for ministry and for Christian living. See, worldly wisdom teaches us that leadership looks like power and being served. But divine wisdom teaches us that leadership looks like dying to self and serving others. I think one of the things that most impressed, was impressed upon me at the church I was at prior to coming here was our pastor, unbeknownst but to only a few people, he, he, we, didn't have, we didn't pay a cleaning person to come in or anything, and nobody really knew about it except for a handful of us, but he would routinely clean the bathrooms. And I just remember, what? This is a servant's posture. I've been to many a church where the pastor wouldn't be caught dead cleaning the bathrooms. Stuck with me. This is what Christian leaders do. They serve. Christian leaders say, as John the Baptist once did, he, that's Jesus, must become greater. I must become less He must increase. I must decrease. Because servant, not celebrity, is the posture of Christian leadership. And it is modeled after the servant king. Friends, do not idolize or lionize any Christian leader. I mean, certainly don't do it to me. Most of you know me well enough that you're like, we would never do that to you. But but don't. Don't lionize or idolize any Christian leader. Because Christian leaders just like you are tempted towards pride. I mean, the monster of pride lurks around the corners of my heart just like it does yours. The desire to be somebody. 
to step right into those idolizations is deadly. Pray for me. Don't lionize me. Pray for your leaders. Pray that they wouldn't, that I wouldn't succumb to pride. Pray for God to raise up leaders who live cruciform lives of service. Paul continues his argument against putting men in God's place by moving from the picture of the farm to a picture of a building. Look with me at verse 10. According to God's grace that was given to me, I have laid a foundation as a skilled master builder, and another builds on it. But each one is to be careful how he builds on it, for no one can lay any other foundation than what has been laid down. That foundation is Jesus Christ. If anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, each one's work will become obvious, for the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire. The fire will test the quality of each one's work. If anyone's work that he has built survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will experience loss. But he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Two two main points here to keep in mind as we walk through the passage a little bit. Leaders are going to be held accountable for how they lead. They need to be careful about how they lead. And here's the second point that comes on the uh, tail end of that. We, that's you, the church, need to be careful about who you allow to lead you. Be careful about who you follow. The picture here is also plain. It's important that we keep these things straight, especially as we consider verse 15, but we we don't want to get too far ahead of ourselves here. Uh, The image in verse 15 is a person or a leader running out of a burning building. But anyhow, the the master builder here is Paul. The foundation is the gospel. That's the person and work of Jesus Christ. And we, the church, are what's built on top of the foundation of Jesus Christ. We're like the the framing or the scaffolding. I don't know the architectural terms, but you guys can picture it, right? And other builders are those who are leading the church. As we think about the picture that Paul Paul draws for us, I think it's also helpful to remember uh, that building stuff took a lot longer back in the day, right? Especially large buildings like a temple, it took a really, really long time, like decades. And so there would be a lot of builders involved in the building process. So one person would lay the foundation and put some things up and die, and then the next person would come along and they'd build on top of that all the way until the structure was built. And while the contributions of those builders was important, The most significant thing was the building and who the building celebrated. I think of monuments to pharaohs in Egypt a little bit. Nobody remembers the engineers who led and pioneered the projects, but everybody celebrates the buildings that are aimed or were aimed at glorifying the kings of Egypt. Likewise, the builders of God's church, that's leaders or pastors, elders, are servants who will be held responsible for their work but it is the building that's ultimately celebrated to the end of glorifying Jesus. The building is to be a worthy representative of the king. The building is to have a quality to it. See, the church is to display God's glory. Thus, it needs to be built up with lasting materials. 
that is those lasting materials that are um, tantamount to God's wisdom. Church must be built on God's wisdom according to God's word. So accordingly, if a builder or a leader builds on a foundation other than Jesus, they're not a Christian leader. They've abandoned the foundation. There's only one foundation. Or if a church moves away from the gospel, it ceases to be a church and becomes something else, like a fun social organization, a humanitarian association, a self-help club, or or whatever. But if it moves away from the foundation of Jesus Christ, it's, it's not a church. It's something else. I think interestingly we see from Paul's illustration here that it's possible to build on the foundation of Jesus Christ and Him crucified and to do it poorly. It's possible for leaders to do shoddy work and to use inferior materials. In other words, it's possible to be a Christian and to be a harmful teacher or leader in the church. Christians uh, can have much doctrine wrong. They can have uh, blind spots with their attitudes and they can impart these, um, in this inferior material, these inferior teachings, wood, hay, and straw, to others in their Christian service, only to see it go up in smoke on the last day. See, Paul Paul's distinguishes between two types of materials. Uh, the kind that cannot withstand the fire, which will test the quality of each one's work on the day when the, each of the builder's work will be shown for what it is, and the kind that survives the kind that will perish and the kind that will survive. Those leaders who build with gold, silver, costly stones, the materials of God, will see their work last and be rewarded by God. Whereas those leaders who build with wood, hay, or straw will still be saved by God's grace, but will lose the reward of their life's work. So they'll enter into eternal joy and life together with God and his people, but they will suffer the loss of having wasted their lives, of having built up the church in a way that is not honoring to God. Thus Paul's admonition in verse 10, each one is to be careful how he builds on the foundation of Christ. In verse 13, each one's work will become obvious or the fire will test the quality of each one's work. So let's revisit our two points. Leaders are going to be held accountable by God. They need to be careful how they lead. And we, that's you, the church, need to be careful who we follow and where we follow. And so the exhortation here is don't waste your life following leaders who are wasting theirs. Don't learn from people who are building with the wisdom of the age rather than the wisdom of God. Don't move into a house that's being built with hay and straw. Make sure that your leaders are purchasing and using quality materials. The application here is to pray for leaders. Pray for your Christian leaders and be discerning. Be discerning. Like, see the difference between good Christ-like leadership and quality materials. See see the difference between that and and hay and wood and straw. When we see leaders according to worldly wisdom, we will inevitably venerate them and allow them to build on the foundation of Christ with pillars of sand that will not last. Or we will follow them in abandoning the foundation of the gospel entirely. Like, don't get suckered into believing that someone is a good Christian leader because a lot of people attend their church or because they're well-liked. 
It's unfortunately possible for people to attempt to build the church out of every imaginable human system, things predicated on worldly wisdom, be it philosophy or pop psychology or managerial techniques or relational good feelings or whatever. Intelligent marketing, entertaining speakers, and exciting entertainments can all build a church, but these things are wood, hay, and straw. They will not last. There are many leaders in the church who will suffer loss because of their dependence on man's wisdom rather than the cross of Christ. There are many members in the church who will be held accountable for enabling and encouraging them to do so. Churches built with whiz-bang and warm feelings and the personality of pastors instead of the power of the Holy Spirit will burn down. And those who lead, lead those churches will flee, will, will enter, enter, let me back up there. Those who lead those churches will enter heaven as they flee from their flame-engulfed structure. Right? That, that's the picture in verse 15. You have this leader who's built with poor materials and he's fleeing out of the building as it's consumed by fire. If anyone's work is burned up, he will experience loss, but he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. The phrase here, as through fire, is like a, it's kind of become, what's uh, the word here? Comparable in our culture to saved by the skin of his teeth, right? It's one of those cultural metaphors or in Amos, the same kind of deal is used. It's like a brand plucked from the burning. He's going to make it out. Carson writes, this is a sobering reminder to all those in vocational ministry that people may feel helped, join in corporate worship, serve on committees, teach Sunday school classes, bring their friends, enjoy fellowship, raise funds, participate in counseling sessions and self-help groups, but still not really know the Lord. If the church is being built with large portions of charm, personality, easy oratory, positive thinking, managerial skills, powerful and emotional experiences, and people smarts, but without the repeated, passionate, spirit-anointed proclamation of Jesus Christ and Him crucified, we may be winning more adherents than converts. In other words, we may be building with the hay of worldly wisdom rather than the brick and mortar of divine wisdom. Church, we must resolve to remain utterly committed to and to keep our leaders utterly committed to the centrality of the cross. Not just at vague theoretical levels, but in everything we do, in all of our strategies and all of our practical decisions, we need to think about how Christ is exalted. Paul's pictures of a farm and a building remind us that the church belongs to God not just or not the church leaders and that's really going to be the point of this whole section and we'll see it in a minute here but it's you belong to God not to leaders so grow up and act like those who belong to God that's what Paul is getting at he's pressing home who exactly it is that possesses us it's not Paul it's not Apollos it's not Cephas but God The church is God's field, God's building, God's temple. Paul's choice of precious stones in the previous analogy is not incidental, it's intentional. 
see these types of precious stones were featured prominently in the Old Testament temple, which is the place where God's abiding presence dwelt. Not only does the church belong to God, but we are indwelt with the Spirit of God. Verse 16, don't you yourselves know that you are God's temple and that the Spirit of God lives in you? Uh, This is a corporate sense of the word. He's saying you as the church gathered together, God's Spirit dwells in you. Though later he will speak to us as Christians, as individuals, that we're also the temple, have the Holy Spirit indwelling in us. The the picture here, though, is a corporate one. It's uh, the you here is y'all, all all y'all. It's everyone, all of us together. Saying God is specially present among his people gathered. Verse 17, if anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and that is what you are. God possesses us, lives within us, and fiercely loves us. We are His church, His bride. And He will destroy anyone who messes with His bride. Right? Somebody who is trying to divide the church, somebody who is working to destroy the church, even if they're doing it ignorantly, God will work against. He will give them the Chuck Norris treatment. His wrath toward those who assault his church is an expression of his love for his church. So here's the big time for the whole church, not just church leaders, warning of the text. Warning label on the church says this, warning, anyone who destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. Anyone. So we do well to ask the question, how, how, how do we damage the church? Dr. Carson, again, is helpful. The ways of destroying the church are many and colorful. Raw factionalism will do it. Rank heresy will do it. Taking your eyes off the cross and letting other more peripheral matters dominate the agenda will do it. Building the church with superficial conversions and wonderful programs that rarely bring people into a deepening knowledge of the living God will do it. Entertaining people to death but never fostering the beauty of holiness or the centrality of self-crucifying love will build an assembly of religious people, but it will destroy the church of the living God. Gossip, prayerlessness, bitterness, sustained biblical illiteracy, self-promotion, materialism, all these things and many more can destroy a church. And to do so is dangerous. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. So we need to ask ourselves, am I destroying the church? Are you stirring up strife and divisions because of your worldly and infantile envy and insecurity? Because of your merely human thinking? also do well to think, if I'm constantly working to destroy the church, if these things define me, am I really a part of the church? 2 Corinthians 13, 5, 13, 5 says this, Test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourselves. Or do you not yourselves recognize that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless you fail the test. What does your behavior say about what you believe? Do you live according to the wisdom of the world or the wisdom of God? 
having dealt with the Corinthian misunderstanding of leadership, Paul is going to double back to his original point by addressing the sin underneath the Corinthian sin, which is pride and envy, worldliness. Verse 18, Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks he is wise in this age, let him become a fool so that he can become wise. For the wisdom of the world is foolishness with God, since it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows that the reasonings of the wise are futile. In other words, Paul's saying with, on the front end here, don't think you can adopt the philosophies and values of the world without consequence. Living according to a man-centered worldview means abandoning the gospel. Don't trick yourself into thinking that you can have Jesus as your assistant while you still run your life. Jesus created and sustains all things. He's the king of the universe. He's not the kind of person that you make your assistant. He's Lord of all, not your secretary. And to pretend that he is your secretary is to deceive yourself and to live according to the wisdom of the age rather than the wisdom of God. The wisdom of God dictates that we bend the knee to God and submit our lives to him rather than trying to bend him so that he fits our own will for our lives. To deceive yourself into thinking your wisdom is better than the divine wisdom of God is futile. I mean, it really makes it out that you think you're smarter than God. Right? This, is, this is what we profess every time we sin. I'm smarter than you, God. I know what's better for me than you do, God. My heart is better able to lead me, God, than you are. To paraphrase Paul here really simply, you're not smarter than God, and neither are the human leaders that you follow. Verse 21, So let no one boast in human leaders, for everything is yours. This is an interesting turn. Pay attention. Everything is yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or things present or things to come. Everything is yours. And you belong to Christ. And Christ belongs to God. This, Paul's point here is just brilliant. He says the church doesn't belong to her leaders. The church's leaders belong to the church. And the church belongs to God. He's flipped all these Corinthian slogans on their head. Those in Christ ought not say, I belong to Apollos, or I am of Paul, or I am of Cephas. I am of this or that Christian leader. But instead they are to say, I am of God. I belong to God. Part of the reasons that the Corinthians and people in general attempt to build themselves up, build ourselves up by attaching ourselves to brands or people it's because we harbor deep insecurities, right? We're not quite content. We're insecure. We need something else to tell us we're worthy or valuable, that we are something. And what Paul does here is he demonstrates that the one who has Jesus has no need to feed the pride monster. That's what pride comes from, is deep insecurity. You don't have to feed the pride monster because in Christ, if you have Jesus... God has told you, you are entirely valuable, supremely worthy, eternally secure, infinitely wealthy, completely redeemed, unfailingly loved. 
You don't need to try to fill up the void in your life with anything else because Christ eliminates it. He gives you the satisfaction you long for. These verses are to fill our vision with God's divine wisdom. They're declaring to us that we not need submit to the tyrannies of our lives, whether they be human leaders, life itself, death, the present, or the future. Because all of these things belong to us through our union with Jesus. None of them have the last say in our lives. We need not worry about the the present or the future. Because it is ours. And we are Christ and Christ is God's. And God is using all of these things that we stand to inherit in Christ. All of these things that are ours for our good and his glory. That should sound familiar. These all things that we possess, I think is similar at least, to the all things in Romans 8.28 that work together for our good, the good of those who love God. Friends, we have nothing to fear because we belong to God and all these things, all of the world, are ours by way of our union with Jesus. Uh, We say it this way sometimes. We stole from Dr. Russell Moore because I think it's brilliant. He says, in Jesus, the best case and the worst case scenario for your life is already true, right? The worst thing that could happen to you is not being seen as odd or weird in the eyes of culture. It's not being cast off from the, the cool kids club. It's not even being beheaded, No, the worst thing that could happen to you is being abandoned by God, forsaken and crushed beneath the weight of His wrath, crucified. That's the worst thing that could happen to you. And in Christ, it's already happened to you. I've been crucified with Christ, Paul writes in Galatians 2.20. It's no longer I who live, but He who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God the worst case scenario for your life, crucified and crushed beneath the wrath of God in Christ is already true of you. And the best case scenario for your life is already true. Reconciled to God as a son, adopted into his family. In Christ, we share in Jesus' victory over sin and death. In Christ, we inherit what he inherits. All things. This is the wisdom of God predestined before the ages for our glory. All things belong to those who belong to God. All things work together for the good of those who love and belong to God. And no thing can separate us who belong to God from His love. With that kind of value, that kind of love, that kind of security, that kind of wealth, what have you to fear? What, what, what do you need in addition to that? What do you need in addition to all things? Nothing. Christ has given you everything. And so you need not play the petty games that worldly wisdom sets up. You need not feed your pride. And so church, let me exhort you and myself together to stop wetting the bed like babies. Take off your floaties, get off your beach chair, and plunge yourself into the depths of the gospel. All things are yours, and you are God's. This is 
what it is to be truly satisfied, to know Jesus Christ. Heed Paul's warning. Most not in worldly wisdom or leaders, but instead grow into the glorious truths purchased for you by Christ. Boast only in the Lord who owns all things and has given to you all things. It is a wonderful thing to be possessed by God. It's a good question to ask yourself if you are a non-Christian or even if you are a Christian and you're not, maybe not sure, what possesses me? Let it become Christ. Pray that God would waken you to the wisdom of the cross. Let us together once more this morning confess our sins and run to the cross of Christ and enjoy the forgiveness and the wealth and the glory that he shares with us. Let's pray. Lord, we ask that you would guard us against feeding our pride, against staying comfortable in our sin, against living according to the world's wisdom. Father, help us to not be tempted to compromise biblical truths so that we might be applauded by those who do not know you. Remind us this morning that we don't need any additional applause. We have all the applause, all the acceptance we need from you. That we don't live our lives for acceptance from other people or even from you because we've already been given it. We live our lives not, not for acceptance but from acceptance. You've loved us and given yourself for us. You've adopted us into your family. and Therefore, we live out that adoption. We live in light of the family name you've given us in Christ. Thank you for giving to us all things. It boggles the mind to consider the implications of these verses. Why would we ever try to find our identity and our worth in the trinkets of this world that will not survive the day of judgment? Keep us from this foolishness. Help us to trust in the wisdom of the cross. Help us to strive after you, to utilize our ways and our lives in such a way as to honor you. Help us when we go before you to not have to look back at our lives and say, I wasted it. I wasted it trying to fill up my own pride. But allow us to look back and recognize that you, God, have done a wonderful and marvelous thing through us. You are so good to us. And we thank you for the infinite wealth purchased for us by the blood of Christ. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.